And that last song snuck up on me. I was just thinking, and whoop, I was ready to go. Second Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to go through our sermon series on light and continue through. I hope that you've enjoyed the sermon series. I've learned a lot. I hope you've learned a lot. Um, we covered some really cool topics. Right, the radiance of God's light. We The other day, we looked at the light of the blind. Nate gave a great lesson even this, uh, this morning. And so, the light of his armor. Nate gave me the light of God's judgment, in fact. And he also blessed me with the topic of Satan this evening. So, I think he's trying to sabotage me, but I don't, I don't know. I kid, I kid. But it is a really fascinating topic. I'm glad I have this topic. And I think there's a lot that we can learn from this topic. And we have to first learn, like, what is the definition of, of Satan here? It literally means adversary, or to oppose, to obstruct, or to even accuse. And so you might be looking at that definition, even that title, and wondering, how is Satan a light? How does that even make sense? I thought Satan was, was darkness, that he represented everything that darkness represents. All the evil and the calamity and the hurt and the pain and the hate in life. And that's absolutely true. Absolutely true. And so I think it's better if we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to look at his light as a counterfeit light. And that's what Paul tries to say here. He makes this point in verse 13. Read with me. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants or right of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So you can kind of see there how Satan works. He works as, as sometimes an angel of light. And then he has these servants here who act as servants of righteousness. And they're servants of Satan, whether they, they even realize that or not. And so we kind of get an understanding of what he can do and how he can disguise himself. And you might be wondering, okay, well, well, why? Like, why is he this way? How does he act as an angel of light? And we have to go to a couple passages. We're going to one, at least, Isaiah chapter 14. If you want to turn to Isaiah 14, we're going to look at this. Because this passage here gives us maybe a little, a little sneak peek into the backstory or background or motivation of Satan. And so in context, we have to understand what this passage is talking about. Isaiah is prophesying to Babylon, this evil nation, and he's comparing the evils of Babylon with the evils of, of Satan here. And this is what he says in verses 11 through 15. He says, Your splendor has been brought down to Sheol, along with the music of your harps. Maggots are spread out under you, and worms cover you. Shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations, you have been cut down to the ground. You said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens and I will set up my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the God's assembly and the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And then here's the truth. But you, Isaiah says, you'll be brought down to Sheol, into the deepest regions of the pit. There's two truths here. Babylon is evil, right? Satan is evil, and there's this evil force behind Babylon at play here, and that's Satan. 
and God is going to judge them both and condemn them both. And we're inferring here that that this is Satan based on what Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 18, when he alludes to verse 12 of Isaiah 14, when he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And he's talking to the 70 there who have just now helped those who are demon-possessed and and preached the gospel. And he says, I saw Satan fall out of heaven like lightning. And so notice if you're in Isaiah 14, notice how Satan is referred to as this shining morning star. It's it's kind of a cool name. I don't think anyone would be against being called a a shining morning star, but that's a light. That's still light. And it goes to show that this is talking about Satan, that he must have been some sort of light and now is a counterfeit light. It seems to be why he's so effective at what he does and deceiving us because he knows how to play the game. And so you look at the intentions, at least of Babylon, and they're very similar to what we see from Satan. The intentions of Babylon is to conquer, destroy, and, and just overcome all the, all the people, the innocent people, and that's Satan's intention as well, to destroy us and to, to conquer us and all of those things, and to be, as it says there, to make himself like the most high. Where else do we see that? Does that, that, does that desire sound familiar? It should. Let's turn over to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 and look at someone who fell for that desire. Genesis chapter 2. How does this guy work? How does this king of deception work? He works in one way, is in a disguise. We'll see that here in Genesis 3. But we're going to start in Genesis 2 because it breaks down or it sets the, the boundaries that God places here for Adam and Eve and ourselves. So Genesis 2, look at verses 9 through 10. It says, and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the ground, and there it divided and became four rivers. Okay, and it talks about rivers, but I want you to drop down and look at verse 15. Notice what God does with man here. In verse 15, It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Do you think if, do you think that that tree, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is good for food? Do you think if they're going to, if they eat of it and they're going to die and God said, you know, don't eat of this tree that it's good for food? I don't think it would be. Probably not. And I point this out because this is one of the hooks that Satan uses to deceive he. Now he uses many different hooks, but this is one of them. And he goes on in his deception. Turn the page to Genesis chapter 3 and look at what he does. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasing to the eyes, delightful to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I want you to zoom in on verse 6, focus on a, a word that seems like not important at all, but it is. And that's the fact that she saw in verse 6. And Hebrew, that means she contemplated and she considered and she even may have compared. And so she compared the fruit on this tree to the fruit of other trees. And she saw that it was very similar here. And she came to the false conclusion, right? She came to the false conclusion that it was good for food. And that's how sin works. That's that idea of counterfeit. That's what it looks like. Oh, it's pleasing to the eyes. It seems very good in appearance. It seems like really close, almost identical, in fact. It seems like something I want to eat spiritually or even physically because it's nourishing and it's beneficial. But in reality, when we eat of it spiritually, it's poisonous. And so we keep looking in that text in verse 6. And it goes down the line for a bunch of things we often use to justify our sin. That it's attractive, and it's wise, and it's desirable. And these are things that are good by themselves. These are things that we often want in life. We want a desirable a life that's desirable. We want wisdom in our life. God even says, you should acquire wisdom. Here's some books. Read it. Read these about wisdom. We should... We want a life that is attractive or to be attractive. And these are things that we, that we want, that if we have in our life, we then consider our life to be good. If I had these in my, my pickleball game, I'd probably say that it was, it was good, but it's, it's not. It's not good at all. Keith will tell you. But this is how Satan works as a counterfeit light. If we forget what God says, Satan takes advantage of that. He takes advantage of that, and he uses it against us, showing us something that seems to be good, but isn't, isn't from God at all. It's not from God. It's fruit that if we eat, it's fruit that if produced, is poisonous. And the fact that this is a tree is so cool because it plays into the biblical pattern. This, this tree of the knowledge and good and evil. We eat it and it becomes, it grows within us. It becomes a part of us. We read throughout the New Testament that as disciples of Christ, we are to what? We are to produce good fruit. And so the tree of knowledge here acts as an illustration of we are what we spiritually eat. Do you remember 2 Corinthians we can become a servant to Satan if we spiritually feed ourselves the things that come from him. We can become his servants. And Adam and Eve, this was planted within them, and corruption happened, and the world became corrupted by sin, and it goes on throughout the entire story. We see it in the next chapter. Turn over to Genesis chapter 4 and look at what happens to their children, Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, here, Satan influences Cain. 
Right? Cain and Abel, they're trying to work out their relationship with God and with themselves and between each other. And this is their story here in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Notice how Satan works. It says, And the course of time Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. You can see the anger and the envy settle into Cain here. And there's that same pattern we saw from Eve and from Cain. Just as Eve saw and compared, so Cain, what does he see? He's comparing, and all he sees is Abel's sacrifice and his sacrifice. He's not thinking about the things that are pleasing to God. All he sees are the things of this world. And we know as Christians today, we're not to fall into that trap. God says, don't fall into that trap. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things on earth. This is how Satan influences others. You become a serpent-like figure, a Satan-like figure. You become a viper. Remember Jesus says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers? That's the pattern that we see. That's his goal here. And luckily, we serve a caring, loving God And God here cares about Cain. Notice what he tells Cain. If we keep reading in Genesis 4, God says to Cain, look, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. God is saying its desire is contrary to the life that I've given you and my plan for you and my desire for you, my purpose for you. You must rule over it, he says. And that word, that phrase, rule over, is key. He should understand what this phrase means. It's very similar to what God says to Adam and Eve when he says at the very beginning and he placed them in the garden, I need you to go and subdue the earth. It's a very similar phrase. And now, granted, Adam and Eve are not subduing any sin, but they certainly should have subdued any temptation that came their way. But they didn't, did they? They gave in to that temptation. And the same should be true for us. We're called to be rulers, to rule and not be ruled. And it seems at times like our mind and the sin that overcomes our mind really sits in and we become frustrated. Like, can we become angry? We may even be distracted. And our mind starts acting like this rebellious child and says, I don't really want to do that. I don't want to do what God says. I don't want to come to services. I don't want to fill in the blank, whatever it is. We can go down the list after list. The goal is to be a ruler, a ruler for God and to do his will. And that means I'm taming the tongue as we read in James. I'm taming the mind. I'm taming these things. I'm beating the beast. I'm beating the serpent. But unfortunately, Cain didn't listen to God. Cain takes matters into his own hand, hands and he decides, you know what, this is better. This is more wise over here. And what does he do in verse 8? Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, 
And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Seemed maybe good at the time. Maybe like a good idea in the moment. It wasn't. And he felt that afterwards. That came from the counterfeit lie. That came from Satan. And so we can become angry. We can be envious. Sin can grow within us. And we can try to take people down with us. And when evil is all we're going to listen to, then often that's all we're going to be able to comprehend, when, especially when we're by ourselves and when we're alone. Satan's goal is to sabotage us, to make us like him, not to be images of God as God designed us, but to be imagers of Satan. That is his goal. And so that brings us to our conclusion. Like, How do we discern between these lights here? How do I know what's counterfeit and what's not counterfeit? What comes from God and what comes from Satan? And the obvious answer is the solution here is, is Jesus. That's the big one. That's, that, that should be obvious to us. And he is that tree of life type figure. He is the, the way, the truth, and, and the life. He's also the word of God. And we have to know the word of God. We have to know these things. And so turn over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I know when we think of Satan and Jesus, we want to go to Matthew 4 and Luke 4, but this evening we're going to go to Matthew 16. Because there's some really, really cool comparisons when it comes to the Garden of Eden and how Peter and Jesus talk to one another that we would like you guys to see. So starting in verse 21, when you get over there, Jesus is explaining to the disciples, look, this has to happen. I have to die for the sins of the world here for you guys. I'm not necessarily looking forward to going and experiencing this, but it's what must happen. He says in verse 21, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, those vipers, and be killed. And on the third day, be raised. So those are the boundaries. Jesus understands this is what must happen. And we also know there's some dark forces at work here behind the scenes. And it manifests itself in this person, in the Satan-like figure. And in this case, in this text, in this passage, that's Peter. I want you to notice, what does Peter say to Jesus? Because it sounds very, very similar to what the serpent said to Eve. And so look at what he says in verse 22. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Do you remember what the serpent said? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. In fact, if you eat this fruit, your life is probably going to be better than it is now. And what is Peter saying here? You're not going to die. Far be it from you. This ain't going to happen. You're not going to die. And Jesus here acts as Adam and Eve should have acted way at the beginning. And says in verse 23, he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And usually we say, Jesus, you could just chill out a little bit. That's a little harsh for your friend. He cares about you. He doesn't want you to die. He doesn't understand. But when we put it in the context of Genesis chapter 3, we realize what Jesus is seeing when Peter says this is he's seeing Satan. 
He's seeing the garden here, and it changes things. He's also showing Peter here a lesson. He's saying, look, this is the adversary's influence, and you can't let him influence you. And so Jesus is metaphorically walking in here, the garden, if you will, grabbing that snake and chucking it behind him and saying, no, absolutely not. He's setting his mind on the things of God as an example, on the eternal light, not the things of man that is a counterfeit light that Satan wants you to fall into. Remember, we're talking about, when we were talking earlier, about controlling our mind and the sin that might creep into our life, not letting our mind control us. That all comes to a head here. And, and Cain and, and Adam and Eve, they all messed up. They didn't do what they were supposed to. They forgot God's word. We can't forget what God says. We discern what is counterfeit and not counterfeit by what we see in God's word. We say, I need to know, does this come from God or not? And we read it in God's word. That's why we have passages like 1 John 4, 1 through 3 that tells us, look, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test, test the spirits to determine if they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ who has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that refuses to confess Jesus, that spirit is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. This same counterfeit light acts in so many different ways in our life. In our everyday lives, in our everyday conversations with people, everything. In the global scale of political and cultural shifts and all of these things. And so it doesn't matter, you know, if I, if I gain everything in the world and I live my life just the way with all the pleasures possible and do everything I always wanted, Jesus says it doesn't matter in Matthew 16, verse 26, because, and we'll learn this in a future lesson coming here soon, the eternal life, eternal life is being with Jesus. He says in verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? And so we have to put ourselves, put ourselves back in the minds of Peter here. And turn over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, where we see the second thing we do to discern between a counterfeit light and God's light. In Luke 22, Jesus has a similar conversation with Peter. But there's a comparison here. There's a comparison between Peter and Judas here. And it's, it's very fascinating. In Luke 22, it opens up with verse 3. And what happens to Judas? Judas gives in, he loses control, he's no longer a ruler at all, and it says then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests, right, those vipers, those snakes, and officers, how he might betray Jesus to them. So Judas, he's, he's thinking, man, this is a good idea, these, these 30 pieces of silver, that's light, when in reality we know that's darkness. But drop down because Jesus says, look, one of you of the 12 is going to betray me. And what does he say to Peter? He says, Simon, Simon, in verse 31, behold, 
Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. I love that he prays for Peter not to fail and then says, when you do, you should go strengthen your brothers. And it goes to show that when we feel the influence of the adversary of Satan, when we even might fall and make a mistake for that that counterfeit light, the best thing to do is to lean into our spiritual family with prayer and to to lean into those who will strengthen us, who know and understand and have studied God's word and may know even better than you that may have fallen and learned from their mistakes who are going to strengthen you. Because we're fighting a common enemy. We're not fighting each other. We're not fighting each other. We're fighting Satan. And the strength we have doesn't come from this counterfeit light. It comes from the true light of our Savior, Jesus. And so as we close, I love what John writes in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, and he's strengthening here. He's encouraging the brothers and sisters in Christ when he says, in verses 14 and 17 of John 2, 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, he says, Look, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, Jesus. I write to you, young men, because you are what? Are strong. And the word of God, which we should know to overcome the adversary, he says, which we should know to come, abides in you to overcome the evil one, verse 15. Do not love the world. Or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world and the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the pride of life. Those very things we read about in Genesis chapter 3 is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever abides, or whoever does, excuse me, the will of God abides forever. And that's the encouragement, is that God is so much more powerful than Satan. I don't want you to walk away from this lesson scared of Satan. You shouldn't be scared of Satan at all if you abide with God. Now, he is at work, and that may mean that we go through some tough times. But if we're with God, we know that he's defeated. And Jesus is our victory. And so we have a choice, and we have a choice every day. You know, you look at Luke 23, when Jesus is on the cross, and he's dying for us. And there's two thieves on either side of him, hanging on their own cross. And one of them accepts Jesus for who he is. And the other rejects Jesus. You can read that in verse 39 through 40. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged, railed at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him. Right? The other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And then Jesus says to that criminal who defended him, Truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Those criminals represent the same choice we have today. The same choice Adam and Eve had. It's two people hanging on a tree. One a tree of death, the other a tree of life. And you have a choice. Who are you going to choose? 
I hope you choose Jesus. If you choose today to serve Jesus, to be his servant, to put on Jesus in baptism for the forgiveness of your sins, you can start a whole new life. No longer have to live in fear. If that is what you want this evening, then come forward now while we stand and we sing.